Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. As we enter February, the optimistic snowdrops raise their faces from the chilly borders and there is definitely a sense that spring is just around the corner. As regular listeners will know, in this podcast we explore every facet of gardening, plant care, growing your own fruit and vegetables, pest control, garden design, ideas for small spaces and even greenhouse hygiene, tool maintenance and much more. Plus we have expert advice throughout the gardening year. I'm Tony Dickerson, one of the RHS's team of horticultural advisors based here at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. Coming up in this February edition, Everyday Exotics, how to choose and care for gorgeous tropical plants in your home or conservatory. We speak to the head of Wisley's spectacular glasshouse about the tips for growing exotic plants and flowers, colourful additions to any home. RHS advisors answer your seasonal gardening questions. And, as always, the latest news on RHS garden events across the UK. But first, let's hear about some of the key tasks you can be tackling in your garden this month. My name is Matthew Pottage, and I'm the curator here at Wisley Gardens. Okay, so this time of year, where, as we are ahead of the schedule, a lot of our snowdrops have flowered and they're going over, it is a good time to bulk up or divide up your snowdrops. You can, I like this time of year because you can see what you're doing. You can see the actual the leaves which connect to the bulbs. And if you've got small quantities of interesting cultivars or varieties, it does just help to be able to have that clarity of what's alive and what you've got. Going to a dormant group of snowdrops, you can end up causing more damage cutting through bulbs with your trowel or with your spade. And they do increase so much quicker with a bit more space around them. So now they're in the green, I do really... It's a lovely job just to lift the clump, peel them apart, dot them around. As much space as you want to give them, obviously the bigger the space, the more so kind of sparse the display is going to be next year. I like to move them apart, say 10 to 20 centimetres, and you very quickly find the bulbs continue to bulk up. And you can give them a feed after that, you can give them a, a liquid foliar feed, or you can give them a, a granular feed. Obviously you are going to damage and disturb some of those roots, but I do think it's a much more a foolhardy way of bulking up your numbers. And also, into the rose garden, time of year for pruning and cleaning up the rose garden. Once your pruning's done and you've had a weed through and you've cleaned up, I like to see a clean layer of mulch applied so you're kind of giving a seal, if you like, to any fungal spores, any detritus such as black spot leaves or leaves that have fallen with rust from last year. There's two schools of thought. I mean, you can either clear up as best you can and leave a blank layer of soil, but we like to go in with a fresh, clean mulch. Mulch over last year's remains of mulch, stroke, bits of petal or general, whatever that's left there from under those plants. And then that starts with a nice, clean layer. So if you get any rain splash, which is good at spreading such fungal problems, uh, you're not splashing up any remains from last year. And obviously, as a mild winter, when they do occur, a lot of those fungal fruiting bodies can overwinter quite successfully. Remember, you can find more information on all aspects of gardening techniques on the advice pages of the RHS website. There you can also watch video guides to the key seasonal jobs. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash advice. I'm Tony Dickerson and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Now, question time. Each month on the RHS Gardening Podcast, members of the gardening advice team join us to answer some of the queries they've received recently. As a member of the RHS, you can get advice on any gardening problem for free from our expert team by phone, post or email, or in person at any of the RHS flower shows. 
What's more, podcast listeners can also email us questions directly to podcast at rhs.org.uk. So let's join my colleagues as they tackle some recent inquiries. Hello, I'm Lee Hunt. I'm the Principal Horticultural Advisor here at RHS Garden Wisley. Hello, my name's Guy Barter. I'm Chief Horticultural Advisor for the Royal Horticultural Society and I work at the Royal Horticultural Society Garden of Wisley in Surrey. Mr Goldsmith has emailed in from Leeds. I have a narrow strip of garden. It faces north with two 20-foot or 7-metre wooden fences on either side with beds about three foot wide or one metre in front of each and a concrete path down the middle. He says he'd like to grow fruit and vegetables but with so little space, uh, it's only about 30 foot or 10 metres long, I'd like to use the fences for growing fruit and veg vertically as well as in beds. How and what can I plant to get the maximum productivity from such a small plot? So, quite a few limitations, not least the, the issue of north-facing. Um, I suppose largely it depends whether there's any light as well as sunlight. Yeah, I, I suspect the house here will cast also a lot of shade. So this is quite a difficult situation for fruit and veg, um, particularly for fruit. I think what I'd be looking at on one side is a fan-trained morello. Uh, that's a, a sour cherry, good for cooking, um, also very suitable for freezing and so on. So... Um, uh, that, I think, would be my tree of choice there. And it's, you can't really get particularly dwarfing rootstock, so it's going to eventually fill that space of 20 feet or so. So one in the middle of one of the fences there would uh, do the job. And perhaps on the other side, I think I'd be looking for some raspberries. Um, again, there's summer raspberries, and there's also the autumn ones. The autumn ones very easy to maintaining that you just cut them hard back in February. Uh, summer ones, though, you could actually support on the fence. Uh, the new shoots could be tied in and supported there. Um, but I think those would be the two I'd be going for in terms of fruit. Um, Guy, what about vegetables? Well, um, it's not ideal, that's true. But, uh, for example, you could grow peas up the fences. There's lots of tall peas, like aldermen, uh, that uh, yield quite well in the, in the shade. And then runner beans are reported by RHS members to do quite well in the shade. So they, they too could be uh, trained up the fence. Uh, and things on the ground, again, it's going to be much darker on the ground than further up. But all the same, uh, beetroot and salad leaves and spinach are particularly uh, useful. Um, thinking more widely, I found alpine strawberries to do very well in shaded areas of my garden. It's true, you're not going to get a huge crop, but you do do gain in quality because they're very sweet and pleasant and they crop over a long period. I found blueberries do fairly well in my garden. One thing it does seem to me is that there may be scope perhaps at the end of your garden uh, where you could put a tree of modest proportions and um, having a similar sort of area in my garden I've gone for quince and medlar in those circumstances as being unusual and stuff you can't buy in the shops. So it's by no means impossible to grow vegetables in a fairly shaded garden. I think also stones throw away from the rhubarb triangle in Yorkshire. Uh, Leeds is also the the perfect place to grow rhubarb and it is very shade tolerant so uh, fitting in one of the the good strong varieties even if it's something like Timply Early in that the shady bit should produce some good results. We have an email here from Robert Cox from Didsbury near Manchester. My garden is a junkyard 
well, I'd like it to be. Inspired by all the various recycled and reclaimed garden pots, furniture and raised beds, etc. I see made out of scrap materials, such as baths, tyres, sinks, etc. I'm planning a trip to the dump to get some cut price materials to do an environmentally friendly and cheap garden redesign. Can you give me a suggestion of items I should keep an eye out for that might be particularly useful for upcycling? And are there any that I should avoid that might be dangerous to people or plants or wildlife? I've heard old baths are good for blueberries. Well, Lee, a load of junk? Well, uh, the local tip we've got a recycling or reuser centre, as they call it. And often you go there with something in mind, and then they've got something entirely different, which is um, something creative, interesting and wonderful that you end up coming back with that you never knew you wanted. So... I think in an element, it's about being opportunistic because all the things that have been mentioned will make good containers. And basically, as long as you've got a decent sized something, whether it is a, a bath or a sink with a good drainage hole in the bottom, of course, you can always drill or knock those through yourself. Then you can get compost in and grow a wide range of plants. The only limitation then is if you want to water in the summer because any sort of container uh, with most sort of plants will need watering most days during the, the summer. So I'm not necessarily thinking there's lots of limitations. I think it's almost you need to be a creative person who's going to make the, the best show out of it because it's turning it from the junk into the upcycled thing, which takes that ability to go, ah, that item over there will look really good if I put a coat of paint on and turn it purple or whatever because it's going to match the flowers that I've got or, you know, I'm going to make a really uh, collection of interesting containers that's going to give me perhaps a Mediterranean style set linked to the sort of pots and containers that you would see on a more sort of uh, Mediterranean style. I'm thinking somewhere like Spain, where you're going to put geraniums in it um, so that you've got that neat pattern, um, perhaps going down some steps out of your back door. To see, so in a way, it's coming up with those creative ideas to make it viable. Well, um, in my experience, there's two kinds of junk. Um, there is scruffy tat, which I excel, and there's fashionable tat, um, which I find very difficult. But I have seen people who have an eye for junk um, do some remarkable things. One gentleman on our allotment site here in Woking um, managed to make himself a shed out of beaten flat car panels. Um, he was from Afghanistan, where no doubt um, he's had previous experience. Um, but it did look quite eye-catching. And then scrap timber. Um, often you see people use scrap timber to make interesting wigwams and plant supports or even insect towers. You kind of build a tower, bits of timber nailed together, fill it up with things that insects can use to nest in, like twigs and hollow stems. Uh, corrugated iron. Corrugated iron is a kind of currency among gardeners. And um, you can see bits of corrugated iron move around gardens as people use it for this and that. But it can actually be quite smart. It's got lovely rusted areas and it's got grey bits and you can splash on some bitumen to make it black if you want to. And I've seen some very stylish bird boxes roofed in corrugated iron. Um, and then at RHS flower shows, sometimes uh, venturesome people come along and they take an old car, they cut the roof off and they plant it up. So you can plant a tree growing in an old car and um, put mesh and compost on the bonnet and have a lawn. Uh, and then skip gardens. Um, people have planted up skips. Uh, they've left the rubbish in to provide a division between the various plants and popped the plants into the skip. So if, um, if fashionable tat is your thing, uh, there's no limits.
And F. Jones of Sirencester asks, After the frost, my shiny acanthus leaves have all flopped in a heap to the ground. Are they ruined now? Should I cut them off, or will they perk up when the weather warms up? And also, shouldn't I have cut them back before winter? Tony, you're a good man of an acanthus. What do you reckon? Well, there, there might be some plants in your garden that you might be concerned about after a frost or whatever, but um, acanthus is not one of them. Um, this is a plant that is vigorous to the point on occasion of being invasive, so uh, no concerns there. Cut away the damaged leaves, new ones will sprout. In terms of cutting them back or whatever, just look at the plant. Uh, they can remain in leaf for a very long time with mild winters and so on. You just tidy them up as necessary. Um, but to say, do, do not fear, this plant is going to come back strongly in the spring. I think this problem of the uh, herbaceous perennials appearing to flop after the frost has been more common this year. We had a very mild December typically uh, five or six degrees above the average. So uh, where would you expect plants to die back and then not regrow until the spring? They have tried to grow at this time of year in, in early winter and through the Christmas period, putting on leaves. Then they got hit by that um, frosty spell after Christmas, which knocked them back. But herbaceous perennials have this very resilient nature generally and they can survive. So things that I've seen being damaged, like the, the persicarias, which have the red flowers, they were knocked back, but they will be absolutely fine. Those leaves were lost, but new ones will grow as the weather picks up in spring. Alicia Carr from London has written to us. I was looking for some box balls in a garden centre this week and noticed that some of the leaves had touches of brown on the edges. At £50 each, they were quite an investment. How do I tell if these are actually disease-free? I was worried about box blight. So, are brown edges box blight? Well, um, probably not. Box blight usually manifests itself by spottiness of the stems and of the leaves. So, if you're thinking of buying box balls, which is um, not always that easy to be sure they're free of disease, what we suggest you do is think, have you already got box in your garden? If you have, you've got to be really careful because if you bring box in, um, it'll infest the whole garden. If you haven't got box, it's not such a problem. Um, obviously, at £50 each, speak about speak to the uh, vendor about the replacement situation. If you decide to go ahead, then when you get the box plants home, put them in an out-of-the-way part of the garden, perhaps in your greenhouse if you've got one. Cover them with fleece to keep them warm and moist and leave them for about six weeks of reasonable growing weather. You'll have to water them, of course. And uh, that, if, they're going to, if they have box blight present, the box blight will show itself and you can take them back to the vendor and demand your money back. And if there's no signs of disease after six weeks, then you can be confident that they are free of box blight. If all that sounds too much of a palaver, remember there's some quite nice um, evergreen balls made of things like you uh, as an alternative. One of the most distinct symptoms, and you don't always see this on the box plants that you buy, is... In the, if you start to see patches of defoliation, if you look at the stems along the length, so get running down, you literally get black streaking. It's not immediately obvious, so you might have to look closely or even get a little hand lens to help sort of focus on the very fine stems. But if those black streaks are present, that's indicative of the one type of box blight, which is most severe, called cylindrocladium. However, bronzing can just mean general growing stress. So this is why it's not always easy at first glance just to write it off as being 
yes, that's box blight. I'm not going to buy. So checking the replacement situation, then doing a test like Guy said, is the way of checking for sure. Box blight's um, two diseases, in fact, that have become very prevalent. And what it happens to the plants is they will literally begin to form patches of dead growth. So where you would have a nice green surface, you'll get spots of of dead leaves, which then defoliate and you just get bare stems. So the structural appearance of box where you normally have a neat clip shape is completely lost. And although often they will regrow, they won't maintain that surface. So um, it doesn't necessarily mean the end of the plant, but it can mean the end of the function. Of, so a hedge or bulb just doesn't look like it should in the garden. I noticed Alicia lives in London and uh, with box, of course, there's now the other problem of box tree caterpillar. Um, quite a voracious little pest which will defoliate uh, her new box ball if that's what she decides on. can be controlled with suitable insecticide, but you do need to be uh, on the watch uh, for this relatively new pest here in the southeast of the, the UK. And um, for that reason, um, a, a close watch, you're looking for something that looks quite similar to the sort of caterpillars you might get on cabbages or whatever in terms of coloration and so on. The secret here, go to the RHS website, uh, look at the advice pages for box tree, caterpillar, you'll get some pictures and so on. Now, if you want to avoid that, Guy mentioned uh, you as a possible alternative. Um, Osmanthus would give you, again, another quite fine-leafed ball. Um, even more straightforward, holly, again, all very suitable for sort of quite tight-clipped uh, topiary. So those are other options. So perhaps a box might be something you might just put to one side for the moment. We have an inquiry here from William Downing uh, from Wolverhampton, <clears throat> an inquiry we get quite often at this time of year. He wants to know if it's too late to plant spring bulbs, and if so, is there anything I can plant now to brighten up the borders in March and April? Well, Lee? I think the short answer is yes and no, and it, of course the actual response depends on what you've got. If you've already got bulbs that you haven't planted from the autumn, the quality will be really degraded by this point and because they should be in the ground they should be growing roots and getting towards flowering however if you've got them you might as well just stick them in and see what they do they might provide something but if you're talking about buying new bulbs then no you won't buy them as bulbs the best thing to do is buy them growing in pots and the, the garden centers now provide lots of little pots of bulbs with things like uh, iris little blue flowers daffodils and tulips as well so um if you're thinking right i've missed the boat you can still enjoy a bit of their cheery brightness this spring by getting them in containers ready grown and almost in flower and uh, just in case parts of the garden are a bit shaded uh, wood anemones um, anemone nemorosa is a great little plant for a more shaded spot and it will gradually spread over the earth nice carpet and a bit more unusual in that you get shades of uh, blue and pink and so on so you can add a bit of variety to uh, the the spring uh, color of the bulbs there i was going to add that um, if you have bought spring bulbs but for various reasons have not been able to plant them um, they won't keep until the planting season next september and october so you might as well put them in hope for the best and um, if you're lucky you'll get some flowers and if not well um, you haven't lost anything really a B. McCarthy from Hastings uh, would like to create a fruit area for soft fruit, especially raspberries. They have a clay soil and the area to plant is one metre by three metres. It's 
in the sun, but there's shade in the evenings. When should they buy and plant these raspberries? Are there clever ways of combining plants to get the best use of the space? For example, could they go strawberries under the raspberry canes? And how many raspberry canes do they need to plant this one by three metre area? And how many raspberry canes do they plant to need to plant to get a decent amount of fruit? For people who are not comfortable with um, metric measurements, so one metre by three metre is three foot by ten foot or thereabouts. So three foot by ten foot area and uh, that's the area that's available to plant these raspberry canes. Lee, what do you reckon? It's not a big area. Uh, that sounds like it's a negative, but actually it means you're going to give enough space for the raspberries to grow well, because it, uh, that will create one long row of raspberries. Um, they need support, so they're going to need a couple of big stakes, uh, one at each end and one in the middle, with wires roughly about sort of 18 inches apart um, that you're going to use to tie the canes into. Uh, so you'll need to get that basic structure in place. You've got clay soil. Now, um, ideally, that should be well improved with some organic matter, so something like garden compost or well-rotted manure, because they have quite fine roots and they really prefer lighter soils. Then I go, because it's a clay soil as well, for a really strong variety. So something like tulamine, which is a good cropper, has big berries, um, is a good tr thing to try. Now, I'm wondering whether along the road, because we don't know about the orientation, it is effectively south-facing, because if it is, you might just sneak in a few strawberries along the front. But um, raspberries need quite a lot of space, and they do cast quite a lot of shade, and we don't really want the strawberries to creep out into the raspberry rows, because you'll get... Um, the new canes coming up from the bottom each year and it's quite a job keeping the weeds out anyway so you want to keep it as easy as possible but if there is just a little sort of um, foot at the front where you can just sneak them in on the very sunny side you could just about do it and as it's a very tight space I think it's worth having a go. Mm. I mean raspberries are saccharine plants so they will sort of fill whatever space is available to them the other thing they do like being mulched ideally with some well rotted farmyard manure um, end of the winter or whatever um, and again if you're mulching then plants underneath are not going to uh, tolerate that very well so yeah as Lee says the strawberries on the south side might be an option but I think the other side you may just have to uh, leave to its own devices. I was going to say that uh a 10-foot row of raspberries can actually yield quite a lot. 10 foot is 3 metres, of course. Um, with raspberries, uh, you can get as much as a pound, that's 450 grams per foot, that's 30 centimetres. So a 10-foot row could give you 10 pounds of fruit, um, all other things being equal. Raspberries do need quite a lot of space each side. Normally, you would allow at least 6 foot, that's 1.8 metres, uh, between the rows. But you know, depending what else is growing nearby, it might be quite feasible to, to have the have the raspberries there. My favourite raspberries are autumn fruiting raspberries because they don't need any supporting and they do crop over a long time. Um, in a mild autumn, uh, they can start cropping in September and you're still picking fruit in November. It, it would be nice to use the extra space. And what I tend to do uh, with the summer fruiting raspberries, that's the ones that uh, Lee mentioned, Tullamine, is once I finish the crop, um, I have a squash or a pumpkin planted nearby, which I lead uh, to run through the base of the raspberry canes. And with luck, you'll get a pumpkin or a squash growing there. Big leafy things, very nice. 
three foot by ten foot's a tiny space really so it should be possible to water it really well give it a thoroughly good soak every 10 days um, in summer and you won't need very much fertilizer um, mulch by all means but three foot by ten foot that's a one meter by three uh, just requires maybe 70 grams of fertilizer per square meter or per square yard that's two ounces per square yard and uh, that should be plenty you can really force these things to grow and make the very best use of the space as ever i'm a big fan of alpine strawberries mulches won't do them any harm um, but they will grow in, in in tight spaces mixing plants you're always in danger of growing your own weeds but that's all right because you can just have a trowel and just remove them when they get too too big and you can lay on the water and fertilizer and mulch to make up for it so um, it's by no means impossible to get some really good crops out of such a small area. The RHS Advice Team. As well as free gardening advice, RHS members also get free entry to all four RHS gardens, plus the opportunity to buy priority tickets to the RHS flower shows. You can find out more about the benefits of becoming a member of the RHS and book tickets to the shows and events on our website. Just go to rhs.org.uk forward slash join. Here are some of the events coming up in the next few weeks. Discover the jewel-like beauty of Cyclamen at the Cyclamen Society Winter Show at Wisley on Saturday the 7th of February. Get advice on care, propagation and companion planting and a range of interesting and unusual plants for sale. If you can't make this show, there's another on the 9th of April. Free with normal garden admission. If you're visiting RHS Garden Harlow Car this month, be sure to check out the Bathhouse Gallery's New Year Showcase with a month of brand new exhibitors from art and photography to Willow Creations. Normal gardener admission applies. Looking for a grand finale to your children's half-term activities? Then why not come along to our family scarecrow-making weekend the 20th to the 21st of February at RHS Garden Hyde Hall. Armed with old clothing and a bit of creativity, come and make a scarecrow to decorate Hyde Hall's fields. Scarecrow kits cost £8 for a large and £6 for a small kit. Booking essential on 020 3176 5830. Sessions at 10.15am, 11.45am and 1.15pm. Get your garden buzzing with our pollinator-friendly planting workshop. The Secret Life of Insects, Plants for Pollinators at RHS Garden Rosemore on the 20th of February. This drop-in workshop for families is free with normal garden admission. Full details of all events and more are on the RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash garden events list. Now, in the cold winter months, any dash of colour and a reminder of warmer climates is very welcome. At this time of year, the huge cathedral-like glass house here at Wisley is packed with visitors. They are enjoying not only the vast range of exotic plants and flowers and the warmth of the three temperature-controlled zones, but also they are marvelling at our other annual visitors, the stunning tropical butterflies flitting from plant to plant. We escaped the chilly February air and joined the Glasshouse team leader, Peter Jones, to discuss some of the popular exotic flowers in the collection at Wisley. We asked him which might be suitable to a domestic environment and how to care for exotic blooms to get the best results at home, especially during the winter months. Hello, I'm Peter Jones. I'm team leader of the Glass Houses here at Wisley and we're here in the Glass House on a wonderful sunny day and I can tell you it is roasting Not, and it's fro completely frozen outside so it's a wonderful change for all of those of you who are outside in the cold and it, but if you do fancy a bit of tropical heat do get on down here. Um, 
we're just wandering around the glass house now and we are looking at a few cool plants which if you wanted to and you've got a nice warm kind of conservatory or warm bathroom some cool plants that you could try at home here at Wisley we have a vast collection of plants and in the glass house is no different um, we are basically trying to be a shop window of all the things that are available for you to grow and try at home yourself and as we walk around I can here I am I can point out a really good plant which is quite cool and quite fun and out of the ordinary which you can try it's a plant called the stag's horns fern it's called a platycerum and it produces these growths, which looks a little bit like reindeer antlers. It produces a basal frond, uh, which, is, uh, which is green, and from the centre of that it produces a sporulating frond. Uh, and that would be a really cool plant for a warm, humid bathroom, only really requiring, say, spraying down once a day, twice a day in the really hot times of the year. And it can give that really green feel and quite a jungly feel to your home. Moving around to another part of the glasshouse, another cool plant that you could have a go at growing, perhaps in a conservatory, is Clerodendrum splendens. It's a climbing twining plant um, which you could grow in a container and grow up uh, perhaps a support or a, or a metal arch. Uh, and it produces a, an abundance of red flowers, normally uh, late December, early January. And these clusters of red flowers are, are really wonderful. Well, they're very good for us as, as pollinators and nectar plants, especially when we've got our butterflies in the glasshouse. A really good popular plant that a lot of people like to grow, and rightly so, is hibiscus. And we grow quite a lot in the glasshouse here, mainly because they're really reliable and you can generally get them to flower throughout the year so they can bring that extra colour no matter what the time of the year if you're running your home warm enough. Um, there's a really lovely plant called uh, Hibiscus rosa sinensis cooperi and that has the most wonderful white variegation especially if you like a variegation and it has these very striking red flowers uh, and it can be grown as a bush plant or if you wanted something more challenging you could try and get it to form a trunk to form a standard and have that in a large container but that would be a really nice plant and make a good focal point in the, in the side of a room. We also like growing hibiscus in the glasshouse because it's an ideal nectar plant for our butterflies and as you can hear it's quite a bit of excitement and hullabub in the glass house here um, as we've got our butterfly event on um, and we've got nearly 40 species flying around at the moment and about 2,000 butterflies in the glass house currently. Peter Jones, team leader in the glass house here at RHS Garden Wisley. The Butterflies in the Glass House event at Wisley runs until Sunday the 6th of March. It really is a spectacular experience for all ages and is a sure way to banish the winter blues as well as getting inspiration for plants for your home. Admission is free with garden entry, but places are limited, so remember to book on the RHS website. Details of the collections and special exhibitions at the Glass House in Wisley, such as the orchids and citrus collections, are also on our website. So that's all we have time for in this edition. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Tony Dickerson and all the RHS Gardening Podcast team, goodbye.